Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to Livingstone's Church this morning. Many of you have received little cups here with communion. And there's two uh, lapels or two little uh, tabs. That's a better way of saying it, two little tabs. Pull the first one up. If you pull them both at one time, you may have an accident. And we want to warn you from that. You want to just turn me down a little bit there, Deb? Thanks. I just want to encourage us. You know, God is a God who answers prayer. And I know a couple of weeks ago I was praying for uh, Bruce Cleminger, who is the uh, president of Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. I just want to report to you that even though he was in uh, critical condition there for a while with COVID, he's pulled through and he's doing really well. We just got a feedback here this past week. So God heard the cries of many, many Christians around our country. It's a beautiful thing. You know, God can hear the very cries of our hearts. And right now we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here, the Lord's Table, we call Communion. And this is actually an opportunity to remind ourselves. This is a celebratory moment. Remind ourselves of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. This is the essence of Christianity. This is the foundation that Jesus Christ came, became a man, he uh, fully God, fully man, lived among us, lived a sinless life. He died on the cross as a substitutionary death. When you and I believe in him, that you and I have forgiveness of sins. He was placed into the tomb. God raised him from the dead. Isn't that beautiful? And he is alive and forevermore. And every time we do communion, we're reminding ourselves of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're making a declaration and a proclamation that Christ is coming back again. And uh, we're singing about the King of Kings. That, you know, the moment Jesus came into this earthly world, his kingdom came. And uh, his kingdom has been moving forward ever since. It's growing, it's developing, and there will come a day of culmination where the king will invade the planet. Hallelujah. And that's what we're all looking forward to. So on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, as Paul shares with the Corinthian church, uh, it says, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so, Father, we thank you for this beautiful expression, this, uh, this meal, this Passover covenantal meal that you took bread and broke it, which represented the breaking of your body, the giving up of your life for us. And Lord, even now as we uh, partake of this bread, Lord, I just ask that all of the benefits of salvation, Lord, from healing to forgiveness of sins, to the, the deliverance of our afflictions emotionally, mentally, every which expression that your salvation brings to us, Lord. May we be partakers and receivers of this amazing grace. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat the bread together. It says in the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Father, I thank you that we're in a covenant relationship with you and that you're always faithful to your side of the agreement. Lord, help us to walk in uh, faithfulness towards you. Help us, Lord, to respond to you in obedience. Help us to enjoy, Lord, this rich and amazing, abundant life that you give to us, Lord. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's drink this cup together.
And I'm going to ask you to keep those cups, and when we leave today, that you will just um, dispose of them for us, all right? That'll help our custodian. Appreciate that so much. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. Uh, we're kind of motoring along. We're actually in chapter 26 of the book of Proverbs. We're going to look at an entire chapter, and I've entitled this message, The Fires of Conflict. And how many recognize today there's a lot of conflict going on? Anybody recognize that? And uh, I think people have become angry, and I, I believe because of the restrictions of COVID, there's a lot of pent-up frustration and anger. Anybody sense that? And it doesn't take a lot to get people upset. Isn't that true? And so we're going to take a look at uh, this chapter today, and I, I, I think about what does it take for a fire to rage out of control? You ever thought about that? And you know, of the last number of years, we've seen some amazing forest fires, and sometimes they start out so small and so seemingly insignificant, but once they have the certain context and the certain materials, it just explodes into these roaring fires, and it destroys acre after acre of property and forest and all kinds of people's lives are endangered by it. <clears throat> and so we see that fire, which can prove many times to be a great blessing when it gets out of control. Isn't that amazing? Good things out of control become destructive things. Isn't that true? How many know fire in its right place is a beautiful thing? It, it gives us warmth, it gives us light, but when it gets out of control, it becomes so destructive. And we're going to see today that that's exactly what happens <clears throat> when we live an unrestrained life. It, it becomes very destructive for us, and many things that were meant for good can be used for tremendous evil. Years ago, I remember reading a book by Charles Colson. Colson uh, was uh, an, an aide to Richard Nixon, the U.S. president. He became a Christian later on after Watergate, wrote a book called Born Again, and uh, became really a, a person, because of his prison sentence, he developed a prison ministry. Something that was very negative became extremely positive, and he became a great blessing in society. And in his book entitled Against the Night, Living in the New Dark Ages, he says, today I believe that the new barbarians are all around us. He said, they're not the hairy goths and vandals, swelling fermented brew and ravishing maidens. No, they're not the Huns and Vistagoths storming our borders or scaling our city walls. He said, no, he said, this time the invaders have come from within. We have bred them in our families and trained them in our classrooms. They inhabit our legislatures, our courts, our film studios, and even our churches. Most of them are attractive and they're pleasant. Their ideas are pervasive or persuasive and they're very subtle. And yet these men and women threaten our most cherished institutions. And then he says this, and the very character as a people. Something about characters. Matter of fact, uh, many of us know who Barbara Walters is. She's an American news anchorist, and uh, she was speaking years ago on the crisis of education in the United States, and, and she said this, we are becoming a generation of undisciplined cultural barbarians. So there was something about this idea, and I want you to just keep focusing on this word, character, and discipline, because I believe that Proverbs talks about these things. Colson's response 
to uh, Walter's uh, comment was simply this. It shouldn't surprise us, he says, that modern education could not logically be expected to produce anything else. And why? Because so-called value-neutral education, which purports to teach no values, does in fact promote a value system of its own. And that system runs counter to the moral restraints essential to character. How many realize that to develop character requires moral restraint? Anybody know that's true? It, you know, actually, that's what the wisdom literature is advocating, that we learn to become disciplined. As a matter of fact, when you are growing up, one of the most important things that happens in your home is that your mother and father help discipline your life. Because if you don't learn discipline, if you don't develop self-discipline, you start living an out-of-control life, a life with no discipline, which is not only harmful to yourself, but it also negatively impacts the lives of those around you. As a matter of fact, the New Testament equivalent, I think, of the word you know, restraint, having self-restraint, is actually the word self-control. And we know that when we read Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, one of the results of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives is not only love, joy, and peace, but one of those elements and results of God's Spirit at work in our lives is self-control, that we actually have self-control. How many think self-control is probably a good thing? You know, that we can actually control ourselves. And people who can't control themselves get into all kinds of problems. You know, we can talk about addictive behavior. We can talk about compulsive behavior. We can talk about all of these things. But when God's truly in control of our lives, we actually have this thing called self-control. And self-control is very powerful because uh, I've, I'm convinced that self-control helps us develop the kind of social skills that make us successful in life. Do you realize that there are some behaviors that are inappropriate and there's some behaviors that are appropriate? And one of the things that happens was when you and I learn to walk in wisdom, we actually learn to relate to people in a healthy way. And I would argue that the people that are going to be the most successful in this life have great social skills. And a lot of people who are diminished in this life are struggling with social skills. They just don't know what to say, what to do, how to handle it, you know, what to, what to do in certain contexts and situations. And so the book of Proverbs, if you struggle with this, I would encourage you to spend time studying the book of Proverbs because it's going to help you have wisdom. It's going to help you develop these skills so that you can relate to other people in healthier ways. And so I want to remind us that wisdom is actually a skill. You know, it's a skill to govern. It's a skill to know how to behave in certain social contexts. It, um, it helps us to, to recognize that we can only be successful when we have these kinds of skills. And so wisdom is critical in life. And in Proverbs 26, we're going to see four negative character sketches of walking in a path called folly. Because as I've been trying to bring out to you over the course of a number of months now, there's really only two paths in life. You're either walking in wisdom or you're walking in folly. You're either, you're either doing the right thing or you're doing the wrong thing. I know that you know, everybody thinks that there's all these options in life, but really they're all the options 
for the most part, are all the wrong options. It's all on the broad road that leads to destruction, Jesus describes. And here you and I are walking on a narrow path called the path of wisdom, which is a path that reflects the heart of God to the culture in which we're living. And so in these four character sketches, we, we are greeted and met with really the characteristic of folly, which one of the uh, terms is the fool, the sluggard, the quarreler, and the deceiver. And so I'm going to take a look here at how to identify and actually avoid these behaviors in our lives, but also learning how to identify and respond to those behaviors in other people's lives. You know, one of the things that happens is, you know, you might know what the right behavior is, and you might see somebody else not behaving correctly, but how to respond to that, I think, is critical. And I see a lot of us now, we're struggling with how to respond to evil. We're struggling with how to respond to that which is wrong in our society. And I know that that's a fact because I've been talking to people, and some people's uh, response are actually foolish. They're actually unhealthy. They're actually losing self-control. I see Christians losing control and not being restrained in their responses to uh, the folly that's around them. And so I think we need to come back to the Word of God and say, how in the world do I need to respond to the problems in our culture today? How should I be responding as a person walking in wisdom? Do I let, you know, the frustration and the uh, irritations and the hurt and the anger inside of me rise up where pretty soon I'm now being overcome by these things and I'm behaving just as poorly as the people that I'm opposed to? And I see that sometimes that's what's happening. People are being overcome by evil rather than overcoming evil by doing the right thing. And so we're going to take a look here at really three groups of people and how you and I need to not only identify them, but how to respond to them in the right way. And so the first group of person, people that we're going to look at, first group, is a fool. And who are these people? You know, When we think of a fool, you know, somehow in our society, we think that people who are foolish are people who have a mental disability or a mental deficiency, you know, that they're a little bit, you know, that, you know, we could say the elevator isn't hitting the top floor, right? We think that's kind of the fool, right? Or, or we think the fool is the person who's got social ineptitude, you know, we just think, what, a, what an idiot. I mean, how can you behave like that? I mean, that's just so inappropriate, that social behavior. And that's how people see what fools are, but yet God doesn't define fools like that. That's not who God sees as the fool. As a matter of fact, the Bible is very clear about who the fool is. The fool is the person, this is going to shock you, has nothing to do with mental intelligence. I would even argue that some of the people have some pretty good social skills, not all of them, but some pretty good social skills. God can still deem that person a fool because God says the fool is the person who's trusting in themselves rather than relying on God. They are the people who are morally deficient. They're the people who are not looking to God at all. They've become wise in their own eyes. As a matter of fact, Romans tells us, it says, when they knew God, they didn't, were not thankful, and thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools. As a matter of fact, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 1 says this, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, 
and there's no one who does good. That's a description of the fool. That's the person who's rejected God and who is allowing themselves to determine their own course in life. In other words, they've become God. They've made themselves God. They've taken on the, the, the prerogative of being the final and ultimate authority in their lives. That person, biblically, is described as the fool. And so we have to be careful that we don't step over that line once in a while and say, hey, God, excuse me, I'm going to take over right now, and I'm going to do my thing here. The moment you and I take that step, we've walked into a step of folly. We're doing our thing rather than God's thing. We're leaning to our own understanding. It's going to create problems in our lives. And I think that's important to identify. Uh, and I think we have to be very careful. How do we respond to a person who's behaving like this? I, I think that's the other part of it. Because sometimes, you know, these people can push your buttons. And you and I are not careful. We, we may be responding in the wrong way towards this individual. One thing we don't want to do is honor them. And you go, what does it mean to honor these people? We're going to see that in a second. It means that we're putting our trust in them or we're looking to them for assistance in our lives. Now, think what Dr. Walkie points out here. He says the first 12 verse makes it clear that giving him, the fool, a social standing is going to cause great damage. And then he goes on, and as we read here in Proverbs chapter 26, this is the beginning now, Proverbs 26 and verse 1, it says, like snow in summer or rain in harvest, honor is not fitting for a fool. That's not the appropriate thing. Now, how many know that uh, you don't appreciate it when snow starts falling in, in August you know, or July? You know, how many go, this is the wrong time to be seeing this stuff? I mean, we get that a lot in Alberta. We don't need it in the summertime. How many are in agreement with me? You know, you're probably pretty happy once the snow is gone, and you don't want to see that for quite a while. And so, you know, it says like snow in summer or rain in harvest. You know, if you're a farmer, the last thing you want to see is it raining when it's time to take the crops off the field. That's the worst possible thing. And he says those are, that, those are things that you don't want. And he says you don't want to give honor to a fool. It's just not an appropriate thing to do. Uh, as I wrote down, it's two unwelcome weather conditions. These two similes are used to explain that this honor is inappropriate for the fool. Very few people rejoice, I think, to have snow in summer or to have, you know, rain impede their harvest. They're unwelcome intruders. Paul Coptic relates that the first two Proverbs here speak of what's appropriate or not. In verse 1, it depicts natural order out of whack. Verse 2 depicts the order as it should be. Undeserved curses do not stick because like the glory of a fool, they are not fitting. He goes on to say, like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow, an undeserved curse does not come to rest. How many have ever had those birds darting at you? Ever had that experience? I've had some of these little guys zooming around, but the good news is they don't land. Thank God, right? Uh, and he says that's what happened, you know. The picture is painted here in verse 2 that, they don't, that these curses that are uttered against us that are undeserved are not going to work. You know, it's amazing how often we get afraid of things that we shouldn't be afraid of. You know, just because someone, you know, threatens us needlessly doesn't mean it's going to be what happens. The next verse explains the challenge of trying to motivate fools. Do you know how hard it is to motivate a fool? Boy, it's tough. Look, listen to what it says here in Proverbs 26, verse 3. A whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Well, what's he saying? It says, you know, you want to get a horse going, you got to... You gotta, 
whip him. And uh, to direct the donkey, you got to use a bridle. And he said, to get a fool moving, you got to discipline them. There's just no way around it. Now, Paul Coptic says, if a rod is recommended, it is assumed that the fool is no smarter than those beasts of burden beyond convincing by argument. In other words, just arguing with somebody like this, you don't win the argument. You know, you're just wasting your breath, basically. They need to be disciplined. And uh, in the next couple of verses, we find that they almost seem in conflict with each other. It's almost like they're contradictory. But I think what Proverbs is revealing to us is that it takes wisdom to know how to respond to foolish people. You have to understand the context and the circumstances and what's appropriate in each situation. And so let's take a look at verses 4 and 5. I always find this one interesting. It says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. I think this is a great temptation right here. You know, that we start responding in like manner. And then the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Oh, wait a minute, I'm confused now. It says don't do it. Now it says to do it, you know. And there's different outcomes here. So what does it really mean? Well, I think Dr. Longman presents one understanding. He says it's teaching the nature of Proverbs as a literary form. Proverbs are not universally true laws, but circumstantially relevant principles. In other words, it just depends. Like, you have to figure out when to use a proverb. In other words, what should I be doing in this context? Because, you know, sometimes the best answer is no answer, and then other times you need to answer. And it depends on the context. And you say, well, what's the context? Well, uh, he, he, he says the wise person must assess whether this is a fool who will simply drains one's energy with no positive result. How many of you have ever noticed, he goes, forget it, this person's got their mind made up. No matter what I say, I can't change it. I'm not going to waste my breath here. Or whether an answer will prove to be fruitful to the fool or perhaps to those who are overhearing the conversation. Uh, the wise not only know the proverb, but can also read the circumstance and the people to whom they dialogue. And I, I just put to myself, you know, part of the context we find ourselves in determines if we re should respond and how we should respond to it. And I'm going to give you an example. If you're a parent, how many know that when you're starting out in life, you're probably in the category of a fool? Now, let me explain what I mean by that. You're, you're, you're just ignorant. You just don't know. You're a child. you got a lot to learn, right? I mean, no, that's true. And so part of parenting someone is helping them grow up and learn the appropriate ways to live life. And one of the responsibilities, I believe, of a good parent is to discipline their children. Yeah. Come on now. And, uh, you know, we have a whole culture today that doesn't believe that anymore. There's parenting, uh, parents out there that they don't discipline their kids at all. And they're actually not loving their children because they're letting their kids just do their own thing. And that's going to be detrimental not only to that child as they grow up, but also to the people that that child comes into other people's lives. That's a very unhealthy thing. So I think that at that point, you need to speak to the fool. And as a matter of fact, when you look at Proverbs chapter 1, what's the context of the Proverbs? A father is speaking to his son. My son, listen to my words. Listen to my wisdom. I'm giving you experience. I'm giving you instruction. And so there's a great cry today, I believe, in the hearts of many young people. You know what they long for? They long to be mentored. Young people, not only they want to be heard, that's good. We need to listen. 
as older people and experienced people, we need to hear where they're coming from. But then I also would say the reciprocation needs to happen. Young people need to listen to older people who have more experience and have walked through life. And how many can honestly say, as you're a little bit older, you probably made a few mistakes in your journey? Any older person made a few mistakes. And if you're a wise person, this is the difference between wise people and foolish people. Wise people learn from their mistakes and hopefully don't keep repeating the same mistakes. And foolish people keep doing the same stupid things over and over and over again. We're going to see that a little later here as we're going through the chapter. You know? So uh, if you're a boss... Now, you, let's say you've been, you know, you, you're in management. You've been given these employees. How many know you're hopefully trying to communicate what needs to be done, right? And you're really hoping that the message gets through. How many know that's true? You're really hoping it's going to work, you know, but it doesn't always. That doesn't always happen. You know, I heartily agree with Harry Ironside when he says, to answer him, the fool in the same scoffing, egotistical spirit that he manifests would be to sink to their level. That's why it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Don't, don't, don't act like him, he's saying. If he rails, to rail in return would be to follow his evil example. That's how you're overcome with evil. And I find sometimes as Christians, we know we get sucked in to an argument. Pretty soon we're just behaving as poorly as the person that we're trying to fix. How many say that's dumb? You need to be modeling something totally different. There needs to be some sort of restraint in a person who's walking in wisdom. He goes on, but on the other hand, to allow foolish, unlearned unlearned statements to go unchallenged and without rebuttal will only strengthen that person in their self-assurance and their conceit. That's probably true. You know, then he goes on to say, to expose his shallowness and rely convincingly to his folly may at least humble him and give him to feel the need of fuller investigation. And we hopefully think, and we're hoping that that will happen. I think there's a lot we can learn from from this as parents and as educators in moral guidance. And I believe that moral guidance is needed in our culture today. We're lacking it. And that's why I think we're seeing so much rebellion and so much, uh, you know, we're going to see more nastiness in the days ahead because people are unrestrained and uncontrolled. And the, you know, what happens is if you don't learn this when you're a young person, then you end up having to learn it by having society put laws against you. And even in our culture today, we're even chafing against the laws. Isn't that true? How many know we're chafing against law today? And that's an indictment against the character of us as human beings. We don't want to follow the rules. And I'm kind of happy we have a few rules. How many are actually happy we have a few rules I don't know about you, when I get on the road, I'm just really happy that they're going to follow the rules because I don't want somebody coming down the same lane as I'm coming down. You know what I'm saying? How many appreciate that there has to be a few rules? Otherwise, there's going to be some problems out here. But people struggle with that. But let me move on. The following Proverbs actually speak of the effects of honoring fools. In Proverbs 26, verse uh, 6, it says this, Sending a message by the hands of a fool is like cutting off one's feet or drinking poison. That's a pretty strong analogy. I would say that's quite deadly, right? Verse 7, like the useless legs of one who is lame is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. It's going to have no effect. goes on to say here in verse 8, like tying a stone in a sling is the giving of honor to a fool. Verse 9, like the thorn bush in a drunkard's hand is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. Like an archer who wounds at random is one who hires a fool or any passer-buyer. 
And then the la- this one is interesting. He says, and Peter repeats this in his, his epistle, his letter. He says, as a dog returns to his vomit, so fools repeat their folly. Remember I said, they don't seem to learn anything. And then the last verse, do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for them. So don't lean to your own understanding. Proverbs is teaching us that. So here we see that when we hire fools, as in verse 11, by sending them out with a message, because in those days we didn't have the internet and all the telephones and telegraphs and all the means of communication, you're sending it through somebody else. How many of you know it's a pretty dangerous thing to send it through the wrong person? They get the message mixed up or they intentionally foul it up or whatever they do, it's going to cause grief to the person not only sending it but to the receivers as well. That's problematic. In verse 6 it says, they refuse to be shaped by wisdom because they're literally morally crippled. However, knowledge alone is dangerous without proper moral character. You know, you give people uh, knowledge, you give them a measure of power. I don't know if you know that. Knowledge is power. But if you don't give them the character and the wisdom to handle the knowledge, now you've got a dangerous person. It's almost like having an archer that shoots his arrow at random. I mean, that's a scary thing. You could be damaging people around you and not even realizing it. In verse 10, it tells us, To hire a fool is like an archer who wounds at random. They have no conception of the damage they're they're causing. And that's a a huge statement, you know, for all of us. To hire, it says, uh, when we hire a fool, it's a dangerous thing. It's going to cause grief. I think the wisdom writers utilize powerful images to get their point across. If we're lying on a fool to represent us, it's like cutting our own feet from under us, or worse, drinking poison. It's so deadly. It's going to be detrimental to you. I mean, this, you want to take management course? Here's a verse you should have in your management course. You know, Try hiring the right people. That's huge. That's a challenging thing to do. You know, It says... Um, he, just, he describes uh, the fool when you're giving them proverbs or giving them knowledge or you're educating them. And that's one of the things about education. You know, our culture thinks we just got to educate people. But really what we're doing is if we don't trans, if their character is not being shaped and we're just giving them information, we're actually creating uh, a very dangerous person. Because when you've got a highly knowledgeable person but they lack the character to handle it, he says it's like tying you know, a stone on the sling so that the sling doesn't operate correctly and the fool himself or other people are going to get hurt. And that's exactly what's happening in our culture today. We've got a lot of people who are highly educated, but they lack moral character and they're causing a lot of damage. Anybody say that's true? It is happening, isn't it? And we see that a lot. And that's a scary thing. So education without morality is very dangerous. Richard Clifford points out, a proverb is effective only when applied rightly to a situation. And fools do not know how to apply it. Because remember, I'm pointing out to you, wisdom is a skill. The skill to know what to say, when to say it, and how to say it. And sometimes not to say it. You know, just because you have information, sometimes silence is golden. You know, sometimes less said, better. It's not just knowing what to say, but how to say it and when to say it, or if this is the wrong moment. 
You know, sometimes, you know, I've had situations where I knew I had to go correct somebody, but then I realized, you know, I don't know if they're ready to receive it yet. So now I'm starting to pray about it, and I'm saying, God, show me when I should talk to this person. Ever have that? You're praying, Lord, give me the right timing. Help me to know when there's a receptive moment because, you know, how many know when someone's upset with you, that's not the moment to correct them? <laughs> they're probably not going to hear you. Just, just pointing that stuff out to you, you know. Sometimes at that moment, the best thing to do is listen. And, you know, sometimes when people are really upset, even if they're in the, you know, they don't have all their information straight, sometimes trying to straighten out their information is the wrong moment. Sometimes just listening to them and letting them get it off their chest is the best thing in the world and just say, hey, I understand you're upset. I can hear you're upset. You know, like, you know, let them let it out, you know, because they're not going to listen. And, you know, sometimes I've just let people get upset and just let them go, and eventually they ran out of things to say. And, you know, there's a, there's a proverb that talks about this. We're going to see that, you know, in a few minutes. If you don't add fuel to the fire, the fire eventually goes out. And I think a few couples need to figure that out. You know, that would end a lot of conflict in the home if they didn't keep fueling the flames, you know, and... Uh, creating all those kind of problems in their relationships. I love this proverb, like apples of gold and settings of silvers is a ruling rightly given. There's an appropriate time. See, this chapter is dealing with what is appropriate, what is inappropriate. What is inappropriate is to give honor to a fool. What does it mean to give honor to a fool? Really simply, when we, when we are giving them responsibility and power without helping them have the right kind of character. When we're not... You know, as a parent, if we're not disciplining our children, we're doing a poor job. We may be giving them, you know, other types of skills in life, but if we're not helping them develop character, which is the most important element, that's the wisdom side of it. If we're not helping them shape their character and giving them wisdom, we're not equipping them for life. We're actually endangering them and other people. So we need to rethink about what we're doing. But let me move on to the second group of people, and it's those who are lazy. Now, we're not just talking here about people who are not diligent. We're talking about people who are neglectful. You know, I remember preaching here a number of weeks ago. I talked about the one person who forgot to or did not, you know, send a signal off and a whole bunch of people came and invaded a country. You know, negligence can cause great harm. And lazy people, I mean, you know, when we have a responsibility, we need to step up to the plate and fulfill our responsibilities. And there's a lot of people who are irresponsible. So laziness isn't just, you know, somebody who, you know, is a couch potato, though I think that does qualify as being lazy. But I think it's also people who are negligent and are irresponsible. That's also a form of being a sluggard, as the scriptures describe. So what we have here are satires. They're powerful images in the manner in which people who are lazy function. And I believe that the, the wise, the wisdom writers, they love to, you know, they use hyperbole. That's a form of exaggerated speech to make their point, okay? So I don't know if they're literally saying these words, but they want to make it seem ridiculous, their excuses. Now, let me give you an example. Verse 13, a sluggard says there's a lion in the street, a fierce lion roaming in the streets. And earlier in another chapter, he says, the sluggard says there's a lion outside, I'll be killed in the public square. In other words, the reason I'm not going to go out and do what I'm supposed to do is I'm afraid, okay, that there's a lion that's going to get me. Now, certainly there were lions in that time and era, but really, 
they were usually away from where they're at. You know, this is really poking fun at them. This is, you know, an unfounded fear. And I'm going to just say something. We're living in a very fear-filled time. Isn't that true? And the reason why a lot of people don't do things is because they're letting fear define and determine their lives. How many say that's probably true? And so I don't, I'm not talking about being irresponsible. I'm not talking about not taking precautions. I'm not suggesting those ideas. But what I am suggesting is when fear begins to paralyze your life, something's wrong. You need to ask yourself the question, why am I not taking on the kind of responsibilities that God's calling me to, and I'm allowing fear to define and control my life? That's problematic. The second image of the lazy person here, uh, well, we'll call him the couch potato, because it says, uh, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. You know? Now, how many know that uh, doors, don't get, doors don't really move? They, they just open and close. They don't really get anywhere. They're not really advancing anything. You know, they're just opening and closing. And it says people who are like this tend not to get anywhere in life. You know, they don't seize the opportunity. Actually, probably the greatest uh, satire is the third picture, which I think is even more insightful when he writes this in verse 15. A sluggard buries his hand in the dish. Remember, this is when you go to India, they eat with their hands, by the way. They don't have utensils. They bury his hands in the dish, but he's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. I mean, how many to go, that's really sad. That's really lazy, somebody says. Well, we know that that's a satire, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's just exaggerating. But what is, what's the point? Well, like Dr. Walke points out here, he says, Really, it's, it's a sarcastic proverb teaching that the sluggard starves in, in the face of opportunity. In spite of opportunity, he's been given this opportunity, but he's not seizing the opportunity. And it says the sluggard so dislikes any form of work that the very thought of exerting himself exhausts him. You know? And there are people like that. He goes, oh, I'm just exhausted thinking about what I got to do. You know? Now, how many know that you just should get up and do it? You know? Do you know the people that get things done? They don't think about how much it's going to take to get it done. Usually they just get up and start doing it, and they just keep doing it till it's done, right? But, you know, the person who's on the lazy side, they're thinking of all how long this is going to take, how much effort is going to be required. They're counting the cost, and they think it's way too much, and they just stay put, right? They're not going to do that. I, I'm not going to do that at all. And then the conclusion of these Proverbs on the sluggard, which is really another form of a person who is morally deficient, which is really another form of being a fool. Or I could frame it this way. Do you know, I remember my, my, my mother would tell me, your grandfather used to tell us, laziness is a sin. Well, that's just cutting the chase. And correct they were. It is a sin. <laughs> you know, don't just sit in your duff, get up and do something, right? Well, because you're letting other people having to take care of you when really God's calling us to be wise and responsible and start caring for other people. Do you know the happiest people are the people who are focused on other people and the most miserable people on the planet are those that are focused on themselves? And can I just tell you something? We've all had problems in this life. You know, I could do an interview of every person in this room and you could all tell me your story and we'd all be shocked at how challenging some of your lives have been, how difficult. And some people are still camped in their difficulty and other people have decided, you know what, yes, my life's been difficulty, but you know what, I've learned from that experience and I'm growing from that and it's created a deeper level of empathy and I'm going to move past that to help other people with the 
grace that God's put into my life. And as we start to do that, healing comes into our own lives. And I love that about God. God wants us to be, you you know, we always want to be zapped by God. That's really our goal. You know, God just zap me, you know. I want an instantaneous healing. I don't want to ever have to do any any effort whatsoever. Please zap me, you know. I don't want to change my bad habits. Just zap me and make me better. I mean, isn't that kind of the way we are as human beings, you know? We want out of our difficulty. We don't want to learn from them. You know, if we're in financial difficulty because we made poor financial decisions, we just want, you know, to win the lotto so we can get out of it. That's kind of our mentality. Isn't that true? Come on, that's the way we are, you know? Yeah, we want it right now, you know? But God wants us to grow in wisdom. He wants us to change our behaviors and, and use our, our painful experiences and rise up out of the ash heap and begin to minister to other people, even though we don't have it all together. And we're saying, hey, I'm still on the journey. I'm still learning. None of us have arrived. We're all here, fellow strugglers and sinners, you know, experiencing the grace of God together. That's what God's looking for in our lives. It says here in Proverbs 26, 16, a sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven people who answer discreetly. Isn't that amazing? You know, what I find interesting, why I think this one's so good is you can't reason with a lazy person. They're choosing a certain lifestyle, and the wisdom writers believe that it took effort and diligence to be successful in life and in relationships. Negligence was destructive, but those who were sluggards were so deluded that they continued to perpetuate their self-destructive way of life despite the advice of other people who are generally the people they're asking help from. Isn't that interesting, you know? That's the way we are. But I think there are basically two types of poor people, those who are unable and incapable to care for themselves, and I think we have a moral responsibility to help them. Okay? And then there are those who, you know, won't. They won't they, they're capable and they're able, but they don't want to. And those people fit the category that we're talking about here. It fits the latter category. Let me move on to the last group we're going to look at. I'm boring Dr. Walkie's uh, little heading. These are the mischief makers. They get into mischief. They, they're going to do the wrong stuff. You know, fools get into trouble, you know. So these are the people who bring grief into their own life and into the lives of other people. They intrude into, first, the first group are those who butt into other people's business. You know, they're... If you're going to get into other people's business, you're going to get bit. I, I can tell you, you say, how do you know that, Pastor? Well, look at the proverb. The busybody, like one who grabs a stray dog by the ears, is someone who rushes into a quarrel that's not their own. Now, you have to understand something. You know, most of the dogs we see today, they're, you know, mostly people's pets. But in this day and age that we're talking about in Proverbs, these were kind of semi-wild to wild animals. You don't just grab a dog by its ears. You can expect to get bit, you know. And, you know, I'm noticing today that a lot of us, we're just racing into other people's business. And some people are trying to help us get into that business, you know. And I look at what's going on with social media today. I think that's where a lot of people are grabbing onto a stray dog's ears. And there's a lot of people getting bit today. You don't think so? You know... The busybody always gets wounded in the process. 
we take on other people's offenses. You know the hardest people to undo offense from are not the people who were directly offended. It's the person that's the third party in. They're taking on someone else's offense, and you, can, you don't even know you've offended them. You know, I remember years ago, as a pastor, somebody said, I'm really offended with you. I, didn't, I hadn't even done anything to him. He had taken on someone else's offense, you know, and he didn't even know the whole story. And he was, like, upset with me. So, I mean, it's really hard to know that you have to go to somebody and ask for forgiveness when you didn't even know you offended them because you didn't even talk to them or did anything, you know? Do you see how crazy this becomes? It's just what's happening in our culture today. I think much of what we're hearing today are other people's agendas. You're getting a partial part of a story. You know, if you and I are discovering even 10% of what's going on, that's a lot, and we're acting like we're total experts and we have the full, full slate of information. Can I tell you, life is far more complicated than we realize. And, and I'm going to just challenge us. You know, you may not be happy with maybe a, a mayor or a premier or a prime minister or a president, but you have no conception of the complexity of their office and the decisions they have to make. You have no idea. And I'll tell you right now, no matter what some of these leaders do, it's wrong for somebody. No one's going to, people are going to be unhappy. And so you have to live with that as a leader. You're trying to make the best, hopefully make the best decisions possible. And at the end of the day, um, they're going to answer to God. Ultimately, everybody answers to God. We need to realize that. And maybe we do more good by praying instead of just complaining. I'm just throwing that out as a thought. I think Many times we're aroused to action without the reality of the full story. We're like Don Quixote, you know, we're going in there, you know, fighting evil in impractical ways and often by using evil in return rather than responding with self-restraint and wisdom and knowing the right thing to do. But let me move on to the second group, and that's the people who have reckless speech. Listen to what it says here in Proverbs 26, 18. He says, like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is the one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. Um, the tongue, I, I mean, think about that. You know, there's a lot of people that are saying all kinds of stuff, and it's dangerous stuff. Words are harmful, and we need to consider that when we're saying the words, the kind of impact they're going to have. Listen to what it says in the book of James. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it itself is set on fire by hell. Wow. You know, what the devil wants to do is get a hold of your mouth. That's what James is telling me here. If he can get a hold of our mouths, we're going to cause damage right? I mean, how many here could say, you know what, if I say the wrong words, and especially in a marriage, you know, sometimes, you know, saying nothing is wisdom. Just a soft answer turns away wrath. Sometimes, you know, I said one day, I was just kidding with Patty. I said, okay, so Patty, let me get this straight. If I, if I say this, it's going to be wrong, right? And she goes, yeah, you're right. And if I say this, I'm going to be wrong. And she says, yeah, you're right. And so what you're telling me is no matter what I say, I'm going to be wrong. She says, you've got it. <laughs> and then we both laughed. Because what, what, what that was really saying is no matter what I said, it was going to be wrong. So I might as well not say anything, right? And I'm just saying this in a, in a humorous sort of way to sometimes realize sometimes less said is better. And sometimes the best words is I'm sorry and, uh, you know, it was thoughtless of me. Or, you know, maybe an apology is better than anything else. Don't even try to defend yourself. Don't even try to explain it. Don't, you know, 
Because once you do that, you're trying to justify yourself, and it just irks the other person, right? Third expression is gossip. Oh, without wood, a fire goes out. That's the one I like. You know, if you don't put wood in the fire, fire's going to burn down. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. Isn't that beautiful? You know, as charcoal to embers, as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome person for kindling strife. Do you know there's a lot of quarrelsome people out here egging people on? Don't be egged on. goes on to say here, uh, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the innermost parts like a coating of silver dross on an earthenware of fervent lips with um, an evil heart. And so here we see that gossip's the fuel that keeps contention alive. I think there's a lot of contention in our world today. How many say that's true, Pastor? Lots of contention. And that's because people are just rattling their mouths off. You know, don't join the conversation. How's that? Uh, while there's opportunity for the conflict to mend and be healed, these people keep inflaming the situation. It's true. As a matter of fact, Dr. Welke points out, the community that tolerates the slanderer is culpable for the conflicts that it tears apart. And it's true. We need to hold people accountable for what they say. Otherwise, we're going to have a lot of strife. And I think we're living in a culture today with unrestrained words that are leading to unrestrained actions and people's livelihoods and lives are now in jeopardy. And I could, I, could, I could just paint a whole stack of illustrations, quite recent ones, that this is what's been happening. Because, you know, let me tell you something. When you and I render evil for evil, we have been defeated. We have been defeated. And I see so much violence today, you know, in the media. People are responding. They feel like they're not being heard, and so they resort to violence. Folks, violence is never the right response. No matter how bad you've been treated, it's the wrong response. Jesus says that. Look at what Jesus did. Let's look at, he's the one that we're supposed to be copying. And then finally, the deceiver. Enemies disguise themselves with their lips, but their hearts, they harbor deceit. It says, though their speech is charming, do not believe them, for seven abominations fill their hearts. It says, their malice may be concealed by deception, but their wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. If someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on them. What is he saying? If people are out advocating evil, it's going to come back to bite them. It's going to get them. It goes on, a lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works wounds. You know, it's interesting that there's a proverb among the nations, it is common for men to hate those whom they've injured. Isn't that interesting? It's common for people to hate the people they hurt. That's why people abuse and continue to abuse people. And they justify themselves in it because they're wounded. They're damaged goods. And we need to understand that. And so fighting back the way that they're fighting is never going to, it's just going to justify their behavior. Well, here's what we read. Ultimately, they're going to suffer for it. And we need to understand that. So when we don't walk in wisdom, we cause a lot of interpersonal relational damage. How many see that? How many can see everything we've addressed in this chapter is going to create broken relationships? Everybody see that? So what are they telling us? Use wisdom. Use restraint. Be able to identify things. God is calling us to minister to people. How many know we need, we need the wisdom of God to discern what to do and who we're dealing with and not to succumb to what people are doing to us? Because that's a very deep temptation, isn't it? When someone hurts you, what do you want to do? Strike back. 
That's the natural human response. I'm going to tell you something. It takes supernatural, spirit-empowered grace not to strike back. It takes the spirit of, the, of Christ within us to turn the other cheek, to do the good thing, to forgive people. It's a lot harder to do, isn't it? Lord, deliver us from responding in like manner, either with indifference or negligence, anger, or being overcome by evil. Let us stand. So this morning, you know, as we close, you know, as I was thinking about this, so what difference does this, these, these verses make in our lives? What difference should this make? How many here say, you know, Pastor, I realize I need to, I, there's a little lack of self-control in my life. Anybody here have any issue with self-control? Any self-control issues? Okay. So you guys, all of the rest of you are perfect. <laughs> you never sin with your lips. You never say the wrong thing. Or do we all need to say, Lord, I need your help today. It's me, Lord. I need wisdom to flood my soul. I need the Holy Spirit to give me self-control. How many say, fill me with the Holy Ghost? And it's not so that I can just speak in tongues more. You know, It's not just so that I can operate in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in that, by the way. But really, what I want to see is the fruit of the Spirit, the result of the work of the Spirit in my life, where there's self-control. You know, that I'm showing love, that I'm living in joy, that I'm exhibiting peace. I'm not a conflict creator. I'm a peace bringer. I have self-control and restraint in my life. I, I know this was a very, you know, I, you know I, I wish every sermon you could jump up and down and shout and praise and, and tell everybody how awesome God is and all the great things he's doing. But sometimes we have these sermons that are kind of corrective and instructive. And this is one of those that we're having an explanation of, you know what, maybe I need to, uh, maybe for me, I need to spend less time in social media. Maybe I need to spend more time in the word of God. Maybe I need to spend more time praying and letting the Spirit of God transform my heart so that my response to the people around me is more Christ-like instead of getting wound up for sound and being upset and spreading information that probably has some merit to it, but then there's a whole bunch of lies that are with it, and it's just agitating and aggravating and frustrating and inflaming situations. How many think right now in North America situation's quite inflamed. And how many believe it's quite inflamed right now? How many say, you know what we probably need? We probably need people that have self-control. We probably need people that are full of the Spirit, right? We probably need people that are peacemakers right now instead of agitators. How many say that's probably true, Pastor? How many say, I want to be that kind of person? I want to be Christ in the midst of this broken, agitated world. Can I just tell you something? You know, Jesus could have had a revolution. People were willing to follow him. Jesus chose a different path. He wasn't a zealot. He didn't try to overthrow Rome. He didn't try to get rid of slavery in a single generation. I'm just telling you, there were a lot of things Jesus could have went after. Do you know what he decided to do? He decided to deal with the biggest problem, sin in the human heart. How many think he went right to the heart of the issue? I want us to go to that place. Let's get to the heart of the issue and not to be focusing on, on the peripheral things, okay? I believe if people's hearts are changed, you know what's going to happen? We're going to have a changed culture. Isn't that the truth? 
You know what has to happen? We need to have a real revival in our country, and it starts within me and within you. We need to have a changed heart. We need to be full of the Spirit so that we can respond to the foolish things we're seeing in our culture today. But it'll only happen if we walk in wisdom and we walk full of the Spirit. So, Lord, would you forgive us today? Would you help us, Lord, begin to recognize that we might be actually actually adding to the aggravation and the hostility and the, and the inflaming of a lot of what's going on in our culture today. I pray, Father, that you will help us to be people full of love, full of joy, full of peace, full of self-control, full of the Spirit, walking in wisdom in a culture full of folly. Help us to model a different way of living. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.